0: day. I want to thank all of the people that came out for the UMM uh, meeting this morning. I was unable to attend, but I heard that the meeting was standing room only standing room only. So this is a good thing we can bring uh, members of the community to come out and support the masjid coming out is one thing supporting financially. That's what we really want to see. Your financial contribution is so important. United Muslim Masjid has two locations. The first one being UMM, that's 810 South 15th Street. 810 South 15th Street, Juma Prayer starts at one every Friday. The Masjid is also open for all five daily prayers. United Muslim Islamic Center is located at 1251 Point Breeze Avenue. 1251 Point Breeze Avenue, and it's open for Juma Prayer one o'clock each and every Friday. Uh, I want to go right to the phone line. Uh, My guest for today is not a stranger to the city of Philadelphia, definitely not not a stranger to the airways here. He is a acclaimed writer, public speaker, author, activist, imam, really great brother here in the city of Philadelphia, Delaware, New York, Jersey. Imam Shadi Muhammad is going to be with us today, so we'd like to
1: welcome him, Joe. And I want to the show. But now, Brother Imam. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. How are you? I'm good. Alhamdulillah, jihad. Thanks for inviting me on, man.
0: Nah, man. Thanks for taking time. I know you got a busy, had a busy weekend, and I just want to thank you for you know being with us today. I know we got a lot of stuff we want to try to cover in this short period of time this afternoon.
1: Yes, inshallah. These conversations are much needed, man. Much needed.
0: <laughs> yeah, man.
1: Yeah, you want to let our audience, let our listening audience know what our topic is going to be about today? Um, I'm forgetting what was the what was the title we came up with. <laughs> you got
0: me. The African, the African American narrative between social dysfunction and stereotypes.
1: There you go. I'm I'm just coming from a football game, so you gotta. Yeah, it takes a couple of minutes for me to, you know, reboot. Uh, okay. Did they did they win? Did your son win? Nah, but they were champions before they walked on the field, man. It's all a good. Lot <laughs> by, <a lot> <laughs> it's all good, man. <laughs> um, yeah, the African American narrative uh, between uh, stereotypes and social dysfunction. Um, it's a lot to unpack. That's a lot to unpack, and I'm I'm here for the conversation, inshallah.
0: Well, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're here for the conversation, and that itself is a very broad title. And as I was going through your uh, your Facebook page throughout the week and checking out your different classes, you have a ton of classes that you're doing and events that you're you're part of. And one of them, before we get to our main topic today, I wanted you to t- touch on detoxing yourself from
1: yourself, a 10-week intense course. Tell us briefly about that. Well, Alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen, wa salatu salam ala ashraf al wa wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. So, um, the detox course is a, a 10-week course that I um, put together maybe about two years ago. Um, and this course, um, it, it, I don't know if you, know, you guys are familiar with, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's some people that are familiar with, um, Cognitive behavior therapy. And that that's pretty much what it is. um, Just framed from an Islamic context. And what this is, is uh, basically challenging negative thoughts, you know, um, self polarizing, you know, uh, self sabotaging, self destructive thoughts and beliefs that turn into behaviors that have, you know, kind of kept us at, you know, kept many people at a place in their lives uh, where they cannot get past. So basically, we're just kind of framing, you know, the, the Islamic knowledge that we have, information that we have in a way where we can begin now challenging our inner selves, you know, challenging the, the subtitle of the course is challenging your inner critic, you know, silencing your inner critic. And uh, we can be very critical of ourselves sometimes. And as a result of that, you know, we end up, you know, exhibiting some very toxic behaviors.
0: That sounds like a wonderful, wonderful course that I think we all need. Now, is this an ongoing course or is it did it start at a certain time and end and you take a break and you resume it? Say it again. Is this an ongoing course? Or does it stop at some point or is it like a new date when it will begin?
1: Uh the next course will um will start December, Thursday, December 19th. Uh the course only runs on Thursdays, Thursdays. It's an online course i i have students as far as um scotland i have students from the uk i have students from australia i have students you know pretty much from all around the world you know uh canada you know canada you know america obviously um so you know it's an online course you can sit in the comfort of your living room you know come home from work you know relax get your coffee get your tea and you know pull out your laptop and really begin to, you know, digest the information. It's very interactive. Uh, we use a program called Zoom where, you know, the students can see me. I can see them. I have a whiteboard. I write, I write on notes on the board. They take down notes. They ask questions. And it's very interactive. It's, it's very interesting. Um, and alhamdulillah, we just thank Allah for, you know, the technology that you know, has been given to us you know, that allows us to, you know, connect with one another. But the, the course starts December 19th. Uh, it's only on Thursdays from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m.
0: Okay. That sounds like a very wonderful course. And as I said, that's a course that I believe many of us need to be able to detox from ourselves.
1: Yeah, we, we need to, we got to take a pause. And then it's, it's what I like to, you know, use, you know, this this phrase or slogan um, that I don't think that we've heard a lot in the SUNY African-American Muslim experience and that is investing in yourself. I know Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, uh, you know, they had slogans like do for self, you know, the working community do for self, which, you know, um, I'm all for that. But self-investment, you know, investing in yourself and investing in yourself is not just, you know, buying a new pair of sneakers and looking nice, but also, you know, making sure your internal is straight. You know, because it it, it does a man no good to look good on the outside and you are a horrible mess on the inside, man, you know? Hmm. Well, let me ask you this. When you
0: mentioned uh, do for self, when we look at today in our current times that, you know, the African-American Muslims and what we're dealing with, what we're going through here in America, why don't we see that emphasized as much as we did years ago the whole motto
1: of doing for self? You know what, Jihad? I, I really don't know. I, 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 To be honest with you, I'm a convert to Islam. So a lot of the things, you know, like for the first, I would say the first eight years of my life as a as a convert to Islam, you know, I, I really couldn't see the whole picture. You know, I'm, I'm still like trying to connect dots. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, And now 20 something years into Islam, I'm just really starting to unlearn a lot of the things that we were taught that were just, you know, just backwards, you know, just counterproductive, you know, and for the life of me, I can't figure out, you know, even now to this very moment, why, you know, social issues that affect African-American, that are specific to African-American Muslims, why are they not touched on in in Jumu'ah khutbahs, in lectures, in workshops, you know, in these three-day conferences? I mean, you don't see much of them now anymore, but there was a time when, you know, every other month there was a three-day lecture, three-day conference, and while they touched on a lot of religious components, spiritual components, we totally neglected the social component. And the fact of the matter is that if a person is, you know, um, behind on their rent, If a person is not in a place, you know, where they can actually receive and be receptive to the information that is coming from the Mimbar, it's, 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 it's all, it falls on dead ears. Like if I'm, I know that I'm about to be evicted, I'm not going to go to Jumwa, you know, with, with my spirits up, you know, ready to receive information. The people that can, you know, the people that can do that, they have to be at a certain place, you know, socially, personally. In order for them, you know, there are, are, you know, um, um, there are are hierarchy of needs, right? There are hierarchy of needs, and we have that even in Islam, all right? Mason's um, hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and if you study psychology, then you know what that is. You know, we have, you know, financial needs that have to be met. We have personal needs that have to be met. We have, you know, spiritual needs that have to be met. All of these needs, and when those needs are not met, and... People are coming to the masjid and they're trying to receive, they're trying to receive, you know, information, you know, about their religion, it's not going to resonate with them. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm making any sense no you're making a lot of you know what i mean like if if i know that i'm about to be evicted and then i go to the masjid for jumwa my mind is not on what the khatib is saying during the khutbah my mind is where am i going to get the money to pay my rent because i'm about to be evicted and while muslims like to you know use as their default response to things be patient trust in allah but be patient Trust in Allah, as well as making dua, they also have dual components along with them. Trust in Allah also means tying your camel, meaning doing your part. Making dua doesn't just mean supplicating to God for what you want, but it also means, you know, doing your part and going after the thing that you are requesting from God. You can't say, you know, oh, Allah, bless me with children. And then you sit around and you're not doing, you know, what you need to do as a single person to get married. Children are not going to come to you while you're single unless they're illegitimate. You know, if you want legitimate children, that means that you have to go out, you have to seek a spouse. You first have to put yourself in a position, you know, to be eligible to be married. You know what I mean? And I'm not talking about just financially, but even, you know, spiritually, even, you know, psychologically, mentally, you have to be in a place, you know, to welcome someone into your life and to have a healthy, happy relationship to be able to produce healthy, happy children. So it's not just make du'a and then sit back and wait for the du'a to happen. It's not just put your trust in Allah and not do anything. All of those, it's not just be patient, you know what I mean? Like patience and patience means just sit and do nothing. We have such a very very abstract and a very shallow outlook on these particular elements of our spirituality. And it hurts us in the worst way because it almost seems like we are preaching you know poverty just sit back do nothing be patient have trust in Allah read more Quran and your life will somehow just get better and it doesn't work like that I'm sorry while those things help while those things are complementary all right to your human existence your human journey it still requires work on your part you know Allah says Allah does say in the Quran that Inna Allaha la ma ma That Allah will not change the condition of a people until when until they at first change what is within themselves. If you change nothing, nothing will change.
0: You know, you mentioned marriage. You, you mentioned marriage, and that's a topic and a conversation and a class <laughs> all by itself. But just to touch on it very briefly, when we look at the 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 the, the high turnover if i can say that the the high divorce rate within the african-american muslim community is different than the somali community it's different than the kenyan or the egyptian community why do you think we have such a high turnover and and not successful marriages
1: well, I don't. I wouldn't go so far to say that the turnover rate or the divorce rate in our communities. That's. I think that's a big misnomer. That's a big farce. All right along. That goes right along with all of these statistics that you know African Americans are at a higher risk of this and higher risk of that. I mean, a lot of these statistics, they you know, they're not really rooted in, you know, because what are they doing? What are they basing these statistics off of? They're basing it off of people who have, you know, that they have talked to professors and, you know, people who are going after higher pursuits of education. You know, they do these, you know, um, surveys and things like that. And they're basing a lot of those stats off of that. But I wouldn't go as far as to say that we have higher divorce rates than any other ethnic group. I think that we do have high rates and other ethnicities, other ethnic groups have high rates as well. However, the difference between African-Americans and other cultural groups, whether Somalis, whether Pakistanis, whether Arabs, is that there is a cultural, a, a, a cultural shame that is associated with divorce. So while the couple may not physically separate from themselves, the marriage is toxic. It's dysfunctional from top to bottom, and although the two people stay together because it is seen, you know, is seen as something that is, you know, unpraiseworthy. It is seen as something as, you know, socially, you know, unacceptable to certain groups they stay together however for us as african americans there is no there is no cultural you know communal expectation for the people to stay together so this is why we divorce quicker because there is no expectation in the community to stay together the imam marries you sometimes these processes are very quick they're very quick very expedient we marry the people put them together and that's it if the expectation was for the people getting married to stay married then there would be elements there will be components put in place to ensure the longevity of those marriages but in many of the massage we don't have those components they're not they're not there there is no follow-up sit down with the couple after they're married there is no workshops for married couples you know on a consistent basis there is no pairing you know um you know initiatives You know, and I mean, when I was the imam at UMM, we had the, you know, um, the marriage committee and there were initiatives put in place. And I mean, albeit, you know, we were at the beginning stages of it, but it did exist. There was a thought, there was an idea that we have to put components in place in order to maintain. you know, to people, if they're left to their own vices, they're not going to be able to maintain their marriages on their own. That's just that's just the bottom line. We have, we're too egotistical, we're too selfish, and as African Americans, we we function with an individualistic mentality anyway. We're very individualistic. We do not function as a community, as a group. We are very much individuals, individualistic in our mentality, in our thinking. So when we get into an argument, a woman will say, oh, you think I need you? You can go. I don't need you. Or, or vice versa, the man can say, "Well, I don't want to do this anymore." You know, it's a very individualistic attitude. if well, what I'm are we going to do? If I'm going to, what if we, I make we, any sense.
0: I'm hearing the echo. <laughs> what we're <laughs>
1: going to do now? Uh, we're going to go to
0: the phone line. We have a sister who's been waiting very patiently. She wants to join the show. So now, when they come, welcome to the show. Well, I like a muscle How are you? Oh, I'm good either. Good, good.
1: Alhamdulillah. Thank you for, um, you know, your, your generous words and uh, taking the time out to, um, you know, express that. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and reward you generously. I mean you know I, I i'm never one despite how i feel about people personally i never allow my personal feelings to get in the way of giving people the credit that is due to them you know i i never want to take credit for something that i did not initiate or i did not start um and while you know i seem like one of the few people that is champion championing the whole idea of you know you know merging islam or intersecting islam with mental health uh, i can't help but you know um to credit you know sisters like camilla rashad you know for introducing you know this whole idea of mental health awareness you know to the community especially in philadelphia i can't speak about anywhere else but in the philadelphia area when i was the imam at the masjid there and beyond uh she was she played a very active role in bringing that awareness and since then i think you know Um, other communities, the auto community, the Desi Pakistani community, I think others have kind of like caught on and are now, you know, in their own lanes, in their own realms, you know, kind of championing, you know, the whole bringing awareness to this. And I think for a long time here again, another stigma, you know, associated with mental health is that, you know, mental health issues has nothing to do with spirituality. And, you know, for a long time in the Muslim community, we tend to think that, we, we tend to you know, have this idea that, you know, if you have mental health issues, then that means that you are somehow, you know, lacking in spirituality. You know, you need to read the Quran more. You know, you need to seek refuge with Allah more. And you know, and as I said before, those things are complementary. You know, they they do assist and they do help. But they are not the main factors in, in getting rid of that. Even the Prophet Sallallahu when some of the sahaba came to him and he said they said, you know, we're having these thoughts about and their thoughts that they were having were doubts about the qadr, the divine decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when they came to the Prophet, ﷺ, they said, you know, we're having these thoughts that we don't even want to repeat. We don't even want to say out loud, you know, some of the thoughts and the doubts that we're having as it relates to the qadr. And the Prophet ﷺ turned to them and he said, You know, intahi, you know, stop. Desist with the with these thoughts. You know, and then seek refuge with Allah. So if you look at his remedy, his remedy was, you know, twofold. He says, seek refuge with Allah from shaitan and stop with the thoughts. You know, because thoughts become behaviors. You know, so you are in control to some degree of your thoughts. And, you know, this is why I'm doing, you know, uh, cognitive behavior therapy. Challenging our thoughts. Why do you believe that? You know, we're challenging thoughts like people believing that I'm not enough you know I'm not valuable you know I'm, I'm not worthy I'm not this I'm not that challenge yourself why do you believe that about yourself but if you look at the prophet sallallahu response he said stop with the thoughts and seek refuge in Allah showing us that the approach to these things are not just one sided it's not just one side it's not just the spiritual component of it but there's also another component attached to that and I think that, you know, as time goes on, we're going to be forced by necessity to deal with more of, you know, bringing more awareness to the mental uh, mental health um, illnesses in our communities. We can no longer ignore it. I agree with you. I agree with you. Right. Oh, that's, 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 that is major. The abuse in the home. And I mean, it's generational abuse. It's abuse that was done from the grandparents to the parents and from the parents that are being done to their children and to the children that are going to school and, you know, projecting all of that pain on the other people that they're coming in contact with, whether aggressively or passive aggressively, You know, we're just finding, you know, we're finding that the trauma, trauma breeds more trauma, you know, hurt people hurt people. So it's, it's for us, it's generational and not just for us, you know, my, the principal of the school that I work for is Palestinian. And he said to me one time, we were having a discussion and he said, you know, our parents, he's talking about him as a Palestinian. He said, our parents solved every single issue with us as children by beating us. You know, every problem was solved by physical, you know, harm and physical abuse. And it, and it ruined an entire generation of children. You know, so I'm saying this to say that I don't want us to look at African-Americans as we are an anomaly when it comes to social dysfunction. That was my whole issue with the whole, you know, Somali debacle. You know, that whole situation was simply me trying to shed a little light on the fact that we are not an anomaly when it comes to social dysfunction. Stop using African-Americans as the poster child or the poster children for social dysfunction. So anytime you wanna talk about a social dysfunction in in, in our human experience, African-Americans are the go-to. No, sorry, that goes on in your community as well. Whether Whether you choose to recognize it or not, that's a whole nother conversation, but it does exist. On what level, whether high rates, low rates, I mean one instance is enough. Do we have to have 50 instances? One sister said on my post, she was like, Yeah, but you said high rates. And I'm saying, okay, whether it's high rates or low rates, one instance, one instance of prostitution or poverty, you know, tr- you know, sexual trafficking and in one instance of it in the Muslim community, in any community, is enough. What we need 50 instances to justify? I don't, I don't understand, like, we're steady playing semantics, you know, oh, you said high rates, okay, one instance is enough for us to, you know, sound the alarm, for us to raise an eyebrow, for us to rush to the, you know, begin to addressing it, what do we wait for 50 instances and say, okay, now we have high rates, now we can justify that, no, one is enough, one is a high rate. For the, for the level of spirituality and morality that Islam demands, one instance of prostitution or any type of social dysfunction is enough. That's considered a high rate, one is enough. One instance of substance abuse, this whole idea of statistics, or well, where are your stats and where's statistics? We're waiting to see numbers before we get alarmed and that is alarming within itself.
2: You know, I, 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 I I have the opportunity to go out a lot and speak to a lot of the youth uh, with my job. I try to go around and talk to them, uh, Muslims and non-Muslims. And what I've found that a lot of the young Muslims that I speak to, and my children is included right in there, they don't want to go to the masjid, man. They don't want to have, they'll go, if they want to go there and pray, they'll pray. They tell me that they feel as though the, the masjids, the communities today have nothing to offer them. They're, 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 there's there's nothing going on there socially for them. So I made this point to a particular imam, whose name I won't mention, and he said, well, this is the house of Allah, and this is what they come here to do to worship. I said, well, that may be relevant in the East, but here in America, the masjid for us, that's our home. That's where we have our wedding. That's where we have our
1: fundraisers. That's where we have our chicken dinners and everything else. Can you touch on that, please? Yeah, I mean, it serves, uh, you know, just like the imams in the East and the imams in the West, we serve a different role. We function mm-hmm. in a different capacity. When you look at the imams in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, they, they, they pretty much live in an apartment that's, t- that's attached to the masjid. Um, they pray five times a day in the masjid. for the most part, they might do a class here or there. Um, and even the class that they give is going to always be within a, you know, they're not going to go beyond a certain boundary. The class is always going to be, you know, reading from a small text or something like that, just as a reminder, but nothing major that's going to create any change in society. And they're just basically keeping the spiritual component of the community afloat. That's that's basically what they what they do in Saudi Arabia. And then they have higher levels of scholarship, you know, whether in the university or those scholars who teach in the Haram and the Prophet's Mosque and those who travel the world and give lectures and beyond. And even still within that, they still stay within a certain parameter. They're not going to address Issues, social issues that go on in Saudi Arabia, like homosexuality, which is rampant in Saudi society, like prostitution, which is rampant in Saudi society. Um, definitely not going to mention, you know, the the movies, which is I find very ironic that I was condemned for taking my wife to the movies, and now you have movie theaters all across Saudi Arabia. I mean, go go go, picture that. And I mean, nothing is coincidental. It's all within law subhanahu of ta'ala's plan. Nonetheless, the point that I'm making is that. Um, scholars are not gonna get out in public, especially not with, you know, Mohammed bin Salman in office. They're not gonna jump out there now and and begin to address the deeper issues, the deeper social layers of their dysfunction. So they're just kinda keeping, you know, the, the society afloat. However, fast, you know, turn your attention over to the West, America, and beyond. Um, I can't speak for Canada. I can't speak for the UK. I can't speak for other places in the West, but I'm gonna speak about where I I am from and what I am most familiar with. All right. And the imams here in America, they serve in a different capacity. The imam of the masjid is a father to many of the children in the community who don't have fathers. The imam in the community is a husband to many of the women. And I'm, I'm saying that, you know, figuratively, not literally, he, you know, there are women who comes to the imam's office, not necessarily because they have, uh, you know, a legitimate inquiry, but they, they, they don't, they don't communicate with men on a regular basis, at least not in, in person. And so coming in the imam's office and sitting on his couch and having a conversation with a man, that's a, that's a level of comfort that a single woman, you know, doesn't have the luxury to have on a regular basis. But with the imam, you know, this, you know, some imams there's a level of safety, there's a level of comfort, she, she gets a chance to you know, communicate, you know, whatever it is she's experiencing, so the imam functions in the capacity of a father to the children in the community who don't have a father, to a hus- as a husband to many women in the children, many women in the community who probably will not get married, and will not have the opportunity to have a one-on-one conversation with a man in a non you know, non-sexual capacity, you know um, he's you know he's a counselor he's a you know an educator he's so many things and for imam to you know kind of take a job as an imam and to see himself in the capacity as just an employee you know mm-hmm. who comes in and punches a clock does his eight hours and then goes about his business and you're in the wrong business you're in the wrong business because that's not what the imam does not here not in our communities right you know not in our communities you know, he's a, he's a brother to men in the community who don't have other men to talk to. You know, there were times when I'd be sitting in my office and a brother come knock on my door and he doesn't really have much to talk about. He just wants to be able to talk to another man, just have a conversation with another man because all of the other men in his life don't really have the type of wisdom or have the type of understanding that, you know, he's looking for. You know, it's, it's just so much. And then, of course, the misadget, what the misadget represents. During the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam The Masjid was a, was a home to many of the Sahaba Who had nowhere to live The, the, the Masjid was a place of gathering Where the Ethiopians uh, The Abyssinians would sword fight And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam On one occasion allowed Aisha to sit down And put her face next to his face And watch them while they Entertain everybody else So it was a place where they could wrestle They could play You know, The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam entered the Masjid one day And Abu Bakr was with him And people were, they were wrestling on the Musalla And Abu Bakr rushed to go stop them And the Prophet ﷺ said Leave them, let them play, let them wrestle So that the Jews and Christians know that it's not all religion It's not all spirituality all the time That we have leisure time in our religion And the masjid, what a greater place to have that Except on the Musalla floor The best place in the world The greatest places on earth are the masajid It's not just a place where we go and worship. It wasn't like that for the Sahaba, and it should not be like that for us. Especially the the one thing that we have in common with the Sahaba, that for the life of me, I can't understand why we haven't made the connection, is that the Sahaba were first generation Muslim, converts to Islam, just as we are converts to Islam, most of us, first generation, that means that those of the fathers and mothers of the sahaba who converted to islam those who had mothers and fathers who did not convert to islam their parents were still non-muslims and they still had a connection with their families whereas we convert to islam today and we're fed this second third generation narrative of islam that you know you're supposed to now just completely disassociate yourself from your you know your roots you know the the somali imam the somali imam who made the comment about the majority of african americans being born from fornication and adultery i had a conversation with him personally and and he told me he said brother shadi i was only referring to the non-muslims and i said but it doesn't matter because the non-muslims are still our mothers and our fathers these are still our family members and it doesn't make it right why is it that we as african like so you're basically saying that we have a free pass to talk about non-Muslims any way we want Even if we use inaccuracies Because I had a person post on my page Well, they're disbelievers anyway They're all kuffar anyway And I'm just like, my goodness, man What would the Prophet Sallallahu be thinking about our ummah right now If he could see the way that we engage the people That we should be spending the vast majority of our time inviting to Islam it, th- this has got to be a sick joke man I have got to be living You know what I mean like it, it, I mean it's just really sad man It really is Why, why do you think it's this major Big disconnection Like you don't find A
2: lot of the Muslims engaged In the society that they do Try to bring about change Even as far as inviting
1: Relatives, co-workers Right, the of right. When you like, think I got it, you ain't got it Then you have
2: a, a, a breakdown within the Muslims itself, because I pray here. My Sheikh
1: said, "Don't right. see Muhammad," because right. he goes to the movies and right. so on and so forth. Right. Well, when you think about it, when you look at other cultures, right? Um, whether, um, for example, Albanians or um, any of the cultures that have been heavily influenced by European culture, right? There they are Muslims, you know, Turkish. You know the Turkish community but they're pretty much liberal they're not your conservative Muslim societies these are very liberal you know Eurocentric you don't know I mean type of societies a lot of the elders don't even know anything about Islam but you will never find the youth who have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has guided their hearts to Islam you know um, you will never find them disassociating themselves from their parents their parents drink religiously, smoke, religiously, you know what I'm saying? Like, they have no connection whatsoever to Islam other than the fact that, you know, culturally, they are connected to the religion of Islam. But you will never find those children separating and disassociating themselves from their parents. Meanwhile, converts to Islam, African-American converts, you know, it's like, you know, we got to completely detach ourselves from our families and I just, I don't you know, I don't understand why we accepted that. It was projected on us, right? No doubt about it. Saudi Arabia had a big hand in that. It was projected on us that our family members are kufar, they're non-Muslims, they're disbelievers, they're going to the hellfire, blah, 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 to the end of it, all right? And we are the chosen few, the select few that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided to Islam, and therefore you know, there's something different about us than them. And I mean, other than the fact that we've converted to Islam, but even converting to Islam doesn't really separate you from them if you are still engaging in the same behaviors that they engage in. You know what I mean?